And uh, now I'll invite you, if you have a Bible with you, you can begin making your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as you're turning there, let me ask you parents in the room, have you ever rounded a corner or walked into the backyard just uh, right about the time your kids were about to do something that could end poorly? You know what I'm talking about? Anybody else ever had that experience? Maybe a child had their mac and cheese on a styrofoam plate covered in aluminum foil and they were about to pop that in the microwave. Or maybe a kid had a fork that they were about to stick in the electric socket or there was that older sibling in the backyard that was daring the, the younger sibling to touch the neighbor's electric fence or the older sibling had the, uh, the rope tied to the back of their bike and the younger sibling had on skates and they were about to head off for a steep hill. You all know what I'm talking about? I, I've got two kids that left to their own devices will engage in activities that could very easily result in a trip to Ortho, Carolina. Like a few weeks ago, we had all that rain. You guys remember this in January? Like the creeks were flooded. Th this was my kids. They thought it would be a good idea to go tubing. This is another time, um, I, I could share a lot of these, but uh, Ian was six, and I, I looked out the back window, and he was at the top of the treehouse about to rappel down. Now, parents, when you find yourselves in these situations, what do you do? I mean, do you not warn your kids of the potential dangers they might be overlooking? Do you not help them think through the risks they might have failed to take into consideration? If you came pulling down the driveway and you're like, seven-year-old had the kite strapped to the back and they were perched out on the roof or maybe they were like up in a tree limb, do you not get out of the car and warn them right there? Yes, we do that, right? And that's exactly what we see the Apostle Paul doing in our passage this morning. He is warning, though, his, he is early referred to as his beloved children in the faith. So he's speaking to them as a spiritual father. And he's warning them because he knows that they're in grave danger. Now, if you're uh, worshiping with us, uh, maybe for the, for the first time, I'll mention that we began a study of the book of 1 Corinthians last fall. And today we're continuing where we left off, which is why we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And that also means that this week, our small groups are going to resume meeting. And if you're not in a group, I want to encourage you, after the service is over, when you go through those double doors right there, uh, you, you'll see our resource center. Have a conversation there. Find out how you can get involved in a group. What we see from reading the scriptures is that church really should be more than an event that we attend on Sunday morning. It's also a community that we should belong to. And being part of a small group is a great way to get connected in community. And now, in the event that you weren't with us last fall, 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, the church he planted. Approximately three years has elapsed since Paul left Corinth, but they've stayed in touch. They've corresponded. Paul's even received some firsthand reports from visitors uh, of what's going on in Corinth. So he's aware of what's happening in the life of that church. And beginning in chapter 8, the apostle addresses those in the church who are insisting on their right to continue eating in pagan temples. Ancient Corinth had numerous temples to various gods. And in these temples, 
animals were offered in sacrifice. And so as a result, uh, these temples also functioned as banqueting halls. There were no clubhouses back then. So the religious and civic and, and social lives of Corinthians were all bound up together in the activities that happened in these temples. Meals for the trade guilds, clubs, and even private dinner parties would be held in the temple's dining room. Now, even though these cultic celebrations at times might have served a a civic or a commercial end, religious activities that were pagan in nature were always in the background, if not the foreground. So it was impossible to uncouple idolatry from eating this food that had been offered in sacrifice to idols. And not surprisingly then, the apostle urges believers not to eat in these pagan temples. First, in in chapter 8, he makes an argument from love, and he says, think about the faith of the weaker brother. And then in in chapter 9, if you remember, he likens the Christian life to a race. And in order to win the prize in any athletic competition... You all know that that a certain amount of of self-discipline and self-control is necessary. If you want to be in in top physical fitness, even though you might love chocolate cake, you know you can't eat chocolate cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? A a, a certain amount of self-control is necessary to achieve top fitness. And so chapter 9 ends with an encouragement to run in such a way as to win the prize, to exercise that, that discipline. And then we also see this warning that those who, who fail to exercise self-control may be disqualified and they may fail to earn the prize. Now as we step into chapter 10, we're going to see a continuation of the argument against attending these pagan feasts. And I'll share with you the big idea of the passage up front all at once, and then we'll work through the text together to see how how this is indeed the case. So if you're taking notes, this might be the longest fill-in-the-blank ever in the history of River Oaks. But here it is. Here's here's the summary statement. And uh, if you get this, you won't have to take many notes afterwards. Here's the big idea. Take heed that you do not follow the example of of the ancient Israelites who, despite being the recipients of many divine privileges similar to ours, failed to obtain the prize because of their sinful cravings. I realize that's a bit of a mouthful, so I'm going to repeat that. Take heed that you do not follow the example of the ancient Israelites who, despite being the recipients of many divine privileges similar to ours, failed to obtain the prize because of their sinful cravings. What, what we'll see is that the ancient Israelites who left Egypt, they, they foreshadow us or they prefigure us as recipients of God's blessings. But we need to be careful that they do not also foreshadow us in their tragic demise. If you have your Bible open now, you'll, you'll see that These verses naturally divide into two paragraphs. Uh, We'll look now at the first paragraph, which is essentially, if you want to write something off to the side uh, in in your notes there in the Bible, you can say this is an abridged history of Israel's time in the wilderness. 
It's an abridged history of their time in the wilderness. The section begins, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, and the idea here is brothers and sisters. In other words, he's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. You Corinthians, (laughs) I know you think you know some things. You pride yourselves on your knowledge. But have you really thought about the implications of what happened to our spiritual ancestors? That our fathers uh, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And you might be wondering to yourself, I thought you said we were going to be talking about food sacrifice to idols. Why, why is the apostle bringing up all these events from Exodus? The key to understanding these verses is recognizing that the apostle is making a connection between the ancient Israelites, who were part of that wilderness generation, and those in Corinth. What are those parallels? Well, in short, both groups are recipients of divine privileges. Paul cites five privileges that were bestowed on that wilderness generation. Each one begins with the word all. You can pick up on them there. All were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Number four, all ate the same spiritual food. And five, all drank the same spiritual drink. These are various ways that God blessed or he privileged this generation. As they departed Egypt, we're told that God went before them by a pillar of cloud that provided direction and protection. And when those Israelites were caught between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, God miraculously divided the waters and enabled them to cross through it on dry land. And in these incidents are then combined together in, in, the, in the, the third privilege, and they're interpreted to be a baptism of sorts. The point seems to be just as uh, the Christian life for the Corinthians began with baptism, so our spiritual ancestors, their deliverance from Egypt began with a kind of baptism. And I know that phrase like baptized into Moses might seem a bit confusing, but the point being made is just, just as in the same way that Christ is our deliverer and we're baptized into him, so Moses was Israel's deliverer. Now if that Red Sea event is a type of baptism. The point that Paul makes in verses 3 and 4 is that God's miraculous provision of manna in the wilderness and his provision of water from a rock are types of the Lord's Supper. And calling their food and drink spiritual, Paul is simply wanted to convey that this food and drink were, were supernaturally given by God and they're analogous to the Lord's Supper. You might recall that God provided water from a rock at the very beginning uh, of the wanderings in Exodus 17. And then again, uh, we read one more account of that towards the end of their wanderings in Numbers 20. And so you might scratch your head and say, what's Paul referring to when he says they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ? Well, I I, I think here since rock is a common Old Testament name for God, 
I think we're just to interpret this to mean that, that Christ was the one who was ever present with them in their wilderness wanderings. Christ was the source of, of their provision that sustained them that whole time that they were in the desert. And in this way, if the, if the Corinthians had tried to object to Paul's argument that he's going to make and say, well, no, 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 Paul, you know, our, our situation's different. You, you can't compare us to the Israelites. We've received Christ's benefits, so we're different. We're the exception. And Paul has a response ready. He says, no, no, no. So did the Israelites. They, they, Christ was with them as well. And so there, there are parallels here between what's going on in Corinth and Israel's situation. And for that matter, uh, there's parallels to us as well. We're just like the Corinthians in the fact that we've also received the good news of God's death in our place. We've experienced a deliverance of sorts. Jesus' death in our place is what sets us free from slavery to sin and uh, allows us to have that hope of eternal life. Like the Israelites, we, we've seen God's work in our midst. We've seen people come to faith. Uh, we, we have the sacraments. We have the Lord's Supper, and we have baptism that reminds us of, of Christ's death in our place and all those benefits that, that he conveys upon those who, who place their faith in him. And that's what makes this next verse, verse 5, all the more disconcerting. In verse 5, uh, Paul, he, he casts a, a glaring spotlight on the tragic fate of this privileged generation. The verse begins with an adversative, nevertheless. In other words, what follows runs completely counter to what you might expect, right? Nevertheless, despite being the, the recipients of these divine privileges... We see with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The NASB is more graphic in their translation. It reads, for their dead bodies were spread out in the wilderness. In other words, this is a group of people who failed to obtain the prize. It did not end well. They did not go into the promised land. And the point made... In the next paragraph is that history serves as a cautionary tale. History serves as a cautionary tale. The wilderness generation, they are exhibit A of what happens to a, a group of people who do not exercise self-control and self-denial. These, these verses right here that we're about to read um, in uh, 6 through 10 are a bit like those uh, compilation videos of epic fails, you know what I'm talking about, on, on YouTube and things like that. O only the, um, the footage here is so tragic that you, you don't even want to laugh. It's just sad. Paul, Paul has extracted some select footage from the wilderness wanderings. And uh, we'll look now at verses 6 to 10. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. 
nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. These verses instruct us as to why the wilderness generation, despite their many spiritual privileges, failed to receive the prize. We, we see why they fell under God's judgment instead of his favor. And, and the reason is, you see it right there in verse 6, is that they desired evil. That word desire in the Greek is the word epithemia. It means to have an intense desire for something. Uh, the NIV, if you have that open, it reads to, to set the heart upon. It can be also be translated to, to long for or in the NASB, to crave. And what we see in the four verses that follow are four specific examples of how the Israelites, despite all those divine blessings, they desired evil things. How they, they had these sinful cravings. And the, and the four specific evil desires, the four sinful cravings that, that, that are manifested are the sins of idolatry, sexual immorality, putting Christ to the test, and grumbling. And you want to know what the common denominator in each of these examples is? Their sinful cravings end in divine judgment. That, that's kind of what Paul's highlighting here. Let's start with verse 7. If you recall, Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, and while the people are away, uh, they give all their gold to Aaron, Moses' brother, Aaron fashions the golden calf, and the people begin to offer sacrifices to that idol. And it's interesting, the apostle, when, when choosing to talk about this event, he does not cite a verse that emphasizes their worship, their prostrating themselves before the calf. Instead, he quotes from the latter half of Exodus 32.6. He chooses to emphasize their eating and drinking and the playing that followed. And by the way, when it says they, rode up to, they rose up to play, it, it, it's not insinuating that they got up and started playing Duck, Duck, Goose or Red Rover, Red Rover. Um, it's, uh, it's sort of a, a, a metaphor that has uh, sexual overtones. And, and the point seems to be that idolatry isn't just a matter of prostrating oneself before a graven image. The Corinthians, they might have argued, well, you know, we, you know, we go into the temple, but we, we're not bound down to any of the idols, so we're good, right? And the Apostle Paul says, no. He's like eating, drinking, dancing, all, all these other activities that occur in an idol's presence in that context, all of that, that's idolatry. Verse 8 then alludes to an event from Numbers 25 where once again, Eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality went hand in hand. When the king of Moab couldn't get Balaam to curse the Israelites, he tried to trip them up instead. The Israelites are invited to come and sacrifice to the Moabite gods, which, by the way, also entailed eating in their presence. And then the Israelite men started having relations with the Moabite women. Now, we don't know this was the case in Corinth, but just from what's mentioned back in chapter 6, it doesn't seem a stretch to wonder if feasting in these pagan temples in Corinth might have also afforded an opportunity for promiscuity, for, for play. It, it, it seems likely, and perhaps this is why the apostle mentions this specific event, 
that did not end well for the Israelites. A plague broke out. Paul mentions that 23,000 died. If you read the account in Numbers, you'll see that 24,000 is recorded. And many explanations have been offered for the discrepancy. I won't run through them all, but I'll just say I'm of the opinion that the ancient writers believed that they could be accurate without being precise. And uh, I would say that both numbers are a fair approximation of how many people perished. Uh, The third example, putting Christ to the test, it calls to mind this event from Numbers 21 where the people spoke against God and Moses and started complaining. They said, oh, why, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food, the manna. I mean, here they are. God's taken them out. He's provided for them so many, in so many ways. And it would seem that they tested God because after all that God's done for them, they doubt his goodness, they doubt his intentions, they question his motives, they're ungrateful for his provision, and, it, and, it, and, and, and God's patience is brought to a breaking point. And uh, he sent serpents to bite and to kill many of them. It would seem like maybe the way that they tested God would be like, if you, if you were to save up and you were to take your kids to Disney World, right, and you just purchased this amazing, like, all-inclusive, like, you know, seven, ten-day vacation that you knew was going to be awesome, it was going to be a wonderful experience for them, and you got them all in the car, and you're making, like, the ten-hour trip down to Disney World, and, uh, you know, you, you stop for drive through on the way, and the kids start complaining. Well, if I'm going to have to eat this, you know, and I, and, I, and I can't have my hot dog that I want, then I just take me back home. It, it would seem like that's kind of the attitude that these, these Israelites have. The, the final example is grumbling, which it seems in some way connected with the previous example, the, the putting Christ to the test. The two are so closely connected. Grumbling characterized the whole wilderness experience. Uh, the particular allusion here Uh, Maybe Paul has in mind one from Numbers 11, maybe one from Numbers 14, uh, maybe both. In Numbers 11, we're told that the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, like God's wanting to take them to the promised land. And they're like, we want to go back to Egypt. So God gave them meat, all right. He provided an enormous quantity of quail, but it says, while the meat was still in their teeth, a great plague broke out. Uh, Similar grumbling happened in Numbers 14. This is right after the 12 spies have just returned from scouting out the land. You, you You remember the account of this, and 10 of them give this report where they say, oh yeah, the land is great, but we, we're never going to get it. There's giants in the land. Like, we might as well just perish. And, and the people, it says that they grumbled against Moses and said, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They took exception to Moses' leadership. And you, you can't help but wonder if the apostle thought of this because perhaps the the Corinthians, 
who were insisting on their right to go to the temple or grumbling against him, like, who is this Paul to tell us what we should be doing? You know, we don't need to listen to him. Let's, let's get some new spiritual leaders in here that are going to tell us what we want. And as we read on, we'll see this, this second paragraph accomplishes two purposes. First, we see the reason, we just saw it, the reason why the Israelites failed to receive the prize. And here's the second thing we see. We learn that history should serve as a warning. Verse 11 begins, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, you know how when you're driving sometimes they've got those uh, yellow diamond-shaped signs? You've, you've seen something like this before? You know what I'm talking about, the, the, the curvy road sign or the slippery when, when red? Why does the DOT put those out there? They're to warn us, right? And it's the same way with Old Testament history. Uh, what we see here is that the past is recorded with a view to the future. You know the old expression that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That's sort of what the apostle is saying here. That the fate of the ancestors should forewarn the children. God saw to it that one of the reasons the past was recorded was so that we might be instructed. You and I, here's the point of this. We stand in continuity with that wilderness generation and with the church in Corinth. We are a privileged people. Not only have we heard the good news of Jesus Christ... Like, we have access to a church library, a resource center. We've got podcasts. We've got YouTube. We've got Right Now Media. We've got small groups going on. There's, there's basically an infinite number of spiritually edifying resources that are available to us. And it would be a tragedy if, in, in spite of all the divine blessings that we've received, we fail to obtain the prize because we failed to exercise self-control and instead we allowed our sinful cravings to dictate the decisions we make. And so here's the question. Having left the starting blocks of faith in your journey with God, are you going to run that race of faith in such a way as to win? Or are you going to repeat Israel's folly? So I know we'd all prefer encouragement to admonition. But in order to grow, sometimes we need warnings just as much as we need encouragement. I mean, parents, you want to encourage your kids not to put their hands near the stove, right? But sometimes don't you also have to warn them of the dangers of putting your hand too close to the burner? They need both. And, and so do we if we are going to grow in our walk with the Lord. And so what I want us to do now is to, is to do exactly what the passage suggests, uh, to take these warnings to heart. You remember what it said, 
that, that, that he who thinks he stands, take heed. In other words, if you're sitting here hearing this and you're like, oh, I'm glad I don't need those warnings, I'm, I'm above that, I'm beyond that, then this is exactly <laughs> for you. Uh, don't be guilty of that same spiritual hubris that those in Corinth were of, to think, oh, I'm, I'm somehow privileged, I'm, I'm just fine, I don't, I don't need any of these warnings. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And uh, in the very next chapter, chapter 11, Paul provides instruction on how we'd receive this meal, and I want to read part of that to you now. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And when Paul wrote that, I can't help but wonder if he had in mind what he had just written one chapter prior. If he was thinking about those sinful cravings that had the, the potential to trip up the Corinthians in their walk with the Lord. And so by way of reflection, I'd just say, let's just take a moment and, uh, and examine ourselves. There's going to be time for us to do that privately, and then I'll, um, I'll intersperse that with a couple of corporate prayers to sort of aid in that. But let's, let's just do exactly what the passage says, and let's take heed for a moment. Lord, we've, we've read your word, and now we invite your word to come and to read our lives. We think of what the psalm was prayed in Psalm 139, and we pray the same thing. Come search our hearts. See if there is any offensive way in us, and then lead us in the way that's, that's everlasting. Lord, as it, as it relates to the sin of idolatry, show us right now. If, if there's any area in our life where we're tempted to try to eat both at your table and, and at a table that promotes what's antithetical to you, Lord, show us where we're tempted to make sacrifices with maybe our time or our money or our priorities that that would reveal that we're just as concerned about money or sex or power or beauty or athletic prowess as we are about you. Lord, as it relates to sexual immorality, we know that 
we live in a culture that's very much like the one in Corinth. When it comes to sex, our culture says, hey, as long as it's consensual, it's okay. And yet you come and you say that we're not to be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we may be able to test and approve that which is good and perfect. Lord, show us where we are not walking in step with your very clear instructions. We see in your word that sexual immorality isn't just what we do with our bodies, but also what we do with our eyes. Lord, are we allowing ourselves to be entertained, to be amused by anything that promotes, that glorifies, that sexual, celebrates sexual immorality? Lord, come put your finger on those things so that we might veer from that and not make a wrong turn. Lord, reveal to us if there is any way that we're putting Christ to the test or we're grumbling. Lord, how are we testing your patience? Is there any way, just because of our cravings, that we are stunted in our maturity spiritually? Is there anywhere where our cravings for the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life is, uh, is stretching your patience? Lord, if we're doubting any way that you have our best interest at heart because of the way that circumstances have unfolded for us, pray that you would come, you would forgive us of that, Lord, we know that you're, you're not a God that holds out on us. Just in the same way that you were wanting to take these people to a land full of milk and honey, we know that you have our best interests at heart as well. And so I pray that you would help us to trust in that. Lord, as we confess our sin to you now, I thank you that you would tell us that if we are faithful and just to confess our sins, that you're a God who forgives us from all unrighteousness. Thank you that as we examine ourselves and take heed, that we don't know you don't give up on us. And we celebrate your grace now as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.